Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I see many guests in the chat room tonight, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I am going to open up the phone lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions. And then following the show, please continue this discussion on the Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. Now, over the last year, I have had a number of historians share their research with you and want to direct you to some of the previous shows with Craig Stephen Wilder. This discussion on his research on Ebony and Ivy, Sam Lemon, Gold Stand Up on the Rock, Rebecca Scott, Freedom Papers, and Allison Hobbs, Chosen Exile, Daniel Shortstein, Invisible Lines, Slaves in the Family with Edward Ball, Fathers of Conscience with Bernie Jones, Amrita Chakrabati Myers, Forge and Freedom, and, and many, many more shows. So please check out all of the shows that I've had with historians. Now, tonight's show will explore a new book, The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism with historian and author Edward E. Baptist. Now, this book reveals the expansion of slavery in the first eight decades after American independence drove the evolution and modernization of the United States. Now, in a span of a single lifetime, the South grew from a narrow coastal strip of worn-out tobacco plantations to a continental cotton empire. And the United States grew into a modern, industrial, capitalist economy. The half has never been told offers a radical new interpretation of American history. It forces the readers to reckon with the violence at the root of American supremacy, but also with the survival and resistance that brought about slavery's end and created a culture that sustains America's deepest dreams of freedom. Edward E. Baptist is an associate professor in the Department of History and house professor and dean at the Carl Becker House at Cornell University. So let me give a warm welcome to professor and historian Edward Eugene Baptist to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Ed. To that that uh, list of historians that you've been interviewing, it's a real honor to to follow them as well. Well, it is just an honor to also have you on the show. So please tell us, just help us understand. You know, so many of us have been reading your book. Tell us why you decided to write this book. Um, 
it was a long time ago. I'm not sure I can uh, remember all of it. Um, but but I thought uh, because I'd written uh, for my my first project a much narrow, excuse me narrower book um, that was focused on two areas, uh, two counties really in Florida. I wanted to to write something that um, would would uh, address a much much more obviously address the the much bigger stories in in US history and and in fact I think the biggest stories in US history because I knew it would take me a little while to write it I had two young kids at the time and that tends to slow the process down and and yet at the same time I wanted it to be something that that would um would really speak to them and and help to explain to them uh the the world that they were getting born into and and so I decided, as I said, to take on one of the, the stories that I think is perhaps the biggest story in U.S. history, and that's the relationship between slavery and freedom, the relationship between exploitation uh, and the growth of, of the United States, between uh, theft and wealth and all of those sorts of things. Yes, and, it, and it's a story that needs to be told. I mean, it is part of American history, yet certainly growing up in and this American education system, I didn't hear as much as perhaps I've read in your book about slavery. But I want to, before we even get into your book, social media has been buzzing about the book review you received from The Economist and the subsequent withdrawal of that review. So before we move into the discussion about your book, Please share your general reactions with us about this review. Well, uh, the review, and, and some of y'all may have uh, may have read it. Um, it still still can be found on the internet. But the review uh, dismissed the book essentially and said, "Well, the the book is really a work of advocacy. It present, presents all uh, whites in the story as um, as villains and all all blacks as as victims." Um, I, I think was a pretty much the specific language that they used, uh, and suggested that um, economic interest would prevent enslavers from treating enslaved people with violence and, and as the objects of torture, which is what I suggest is, is part of what made the exploitation actually work so effectively in certain ways. Uh, and and so uh, that that's what The Economist wrote, and they have a system where they have anonymous reviewers. So people have always been asking me, have been repeatedly asking me who who it was, and I have no idea. But as as soon as the review came, <clears throat> came out, um, uh, I was sent a copy by my uh, by my press, and I said, "Well, I don't think this is going to work out quite the way that the reviewer thinks it's going to work out." And as soon as it hit social media, uh, a lot of people uh, reacted to it and and said, "You know, this is this is the." Uh, Sort of review we would have we would have seen forty or fifty years ago coming out of a a, a sort of dyed in the wool neo confederate reviewer and uh, people like uh, Tanahasi Coates tweeted uh, the review out there and and uh, helped uh, he and his readers I think helped to start this um, uh, hashtag of economist book reviews which sort of re, uh, ridiculed the the uh, review which suggested that that I was too harsh on slave owners. Oh, yes, it certainly did, because it's so interesting to, to read something where what all of, all of the blacks in the book are the victims and almost all of the whites are the villains. I mean, it's quite yeah. interesting, uh, a review indeed. Well, let's go into a discussion of your book, because uh, it is, it, you, you have an interesting way of, of laying out your book, and I'm, I'm going to stop talking just so that you could discuss with us how your book is laid out, the, the type of research that went into your book, and we're going to sit back and listen to you. Okay, well, uh, I, I think in terms of the type of research, uh, there's two main things to to keep in mind, I guess. One is that it, uh, the book does build on the work of lots of other historians and other scholars who've been uh, trying to understand the social and cultural and political and demographic history of slavery for many years now in the United States, and it certainly wouldn't be possible without their work. I mean, I think I carve out some new things uh, and highlight some some new findings, but it's certainly not possible without them. So that was that was uh, one um, crucial aspect. 
of the book. But at the same time, as I began to research the book, I, I went straight into the primary sources, and, and really a couple of kinds were particularly important there. Probably the most important kind at all uh, of all is um, interviews with and memoirs and autobiographies of survivors of enslavement. So whether these are uh, documents that were published in the 19th century, like the you know the famous autobiographies of let's say Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs, or much more uh, from our perspective obscure autobiographies. Or on the other hand, I also looked at the um, WPA interviews from the 1930s, uh, over 2,200, uh, in fact, which I I read through. Uh, and and I tried to understand the the themes and the ways in which those those two documents, which two types of documents, which we often see as very different, were actually talking about many of the same things. Especially once one uh, peeled uh, a couple of layers of the onion, you know, and and thought about uh, what came before those those sorts of documents. And specifically, I mean, the kinds of stories that enslaved people told before they left slavery, before they ran away, as in the case of people like Frederick Douglass, or before slavery ended in the Civil War, which was how many of the people in the WPA interviews got, got free. And so, you know, I, I began to see that that uh, there were a lot of common stories, there were a lot of common threads, there were a lot of common ways of talking about things. And in particular, a lot of those trace back to the ways in which formerly enslaved people talked about the experience of forced migration, movement by the domestic slave trade or by migrant enslavers from the old states like Maryland and Virginia, North Carolina, to the new states like Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, which were the heartland of that, that cotton empire. And so uh, as, as I read more and more of them, I, I came to understand that as people survived and lived through that experience and tried to rebuild their lives, they also came up with common ways of talking about that experience. I mean, they were historians of their own lives, and they passed that on to readers uh, or to children and to grandchildren. And, and they, in turn, passed those on in, in the form of things they said in interviews or autobiographies and memoirs. And so that was a really, really crucial um, – I, I think, for me, it was a, a breakthrough – you know, understanding that not, I mean, you knew these conversations were going on because people are always, human beings are always trying to make sense of their own lives. But understanding that, you know, we can get access to them if we look at enough of these sources and, and sort of dig down into that oral tradition. That, that was really, um, uh, really important uh, for, for me. And then I also looked at the uh, the documents that were generated by slave owners. So the, the plantation records, uh, the ledgers, the letters, the business documents, you know, the things that went back and forth between them and their bankers and their merchant factors and so on. And that was also crucial to to the process. And then finally, um, the documents uh, that came out of the, I guess I would say the politics of the expansion of slavery. A lot of this appeared in newspapers, but it also appeared in, you know, the congressional record uh, and letters sent back and forth by politicians and political speeches because, uh, all of those sorts of things revealed uh, and reminded me that that this process of expanding the, the slave South, expanding the cotton frontier, creating a viable slave market in the United States, getting credit from overseas, which was a, a hugely important part of the process. All this was a political process. It was about the use of power, the use of the American state to make slavery expand, to make cotton production expand, and that in turn helped to make the United States by 1860, uh, a great power in the world. All of these types of sources went together, uh, and then I had the the challenge of figuring out how to tell one story from these very different layers of sources. Yes, indeed, and it was quite a challenge. Now, I, I did look at some of your notes, and I just want to go back to one of your notes, and it's about the um, WPA narratives. Uh, and your note indicated that uh, many historians of slavery discount the WPA narrative. So tell us your opinion about that, since they seem to have played a big role in the uh, writing of your book. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the WPA narratives, which were gathered in the 1930s by mostly by employees of the federal government, although there were some uh, state projects, and Fisk University also had a project as well, they were they were gathered with um with the intent of recording the memories uh and 
the folk beliefs and, and the traditions of, of uh, a dying generation of, of people who had survived slavery. Many of them were uh, in their 70s, 80s, or 90s at that point. And different different state offices of the the, the federal agency, the WPA, uh, the Works Progress Administration, different state offices ran the program in different ways. So, for instance, uh, if you look at the um, Alabama uh, interviews or the Mississippi interviews, almost all of them are done with white interviewers, and often these white interviewers are, are locally prominent people. And you can sort of imagine the situation uh, of, in some cases, uh, a, a elderly man or woman uh, who, you know, isn't... isn't <laughs> Uh, very trusting of the local power structure, let's put it that way, uh, being interviewed by the, the daughter of a local judge, maybe the, or maybe by the, the son of the, the man or woman who actually held him or her in slavery. And, and so those, those interviews tend to be very guarded. You find people uh, reporting, you know, the sort of uh, almost gone with the wind version but if you dig a little of, of slavery, but if you dig a little deeper in those, you find that uh, they'll often say, "Well, my owner was very uh, was very kind, but the next guy over, uh, he did he did horrible things." If you look then, on the other hand, at the interviews in states where you had a lot of African American interviewers, uh, like Tennessee, uh, like Virginia, like Florida, where Zora Neale Hurston even participated in some of the some of the interviewing, what you find is is that the the things that are under the surface that are told in these sort of um, circular ways, uh, in these sort of guarded ways, in the Alabama and Mississippi or Texas interviews, these things are out in the open in those Virginia and Florida interviews. So you really need to read all of them, uh, if at all possible, and you need to compare them. And you also, as I suggested before, you have to look at the 19th century uh, uh, published autobiographies as well. And that's when you start to see that there's been this whole conversation happening long before 1930 among slave, uh, enslaved people and survivors of slavery, a whole set of discussions about not only their own personal experiences, but how to fit those personal experiences into a much larger picture. So I think that's what um, previous historians maybe didn't always, uh, they didn't always think about that. Uh, they approached individual interviews uh, as if they either were or were not uh, a 100% true or 100% not true empirical statement uh, about what happened to the individual in question. Uh, but uh -huh. what what they actually are is part of a much larger tradition of talking about slavery. You are so right about that. Now, since we are talking about capitalism, and we are—I mean, this this is what your book is is telling us. What was uh, the biggest commodity, and and what kind of made the big change with with slavery, so that we could see something happening in movement? Uh, taking place. Just talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Well, it was cotton. Uh, it was cotton. Cotton was the most widely traded commodity in the world in the 19th century. Uh, in fact, uh, Sven Beckert, who's a professor at Harvard, has just published this fantastic book on uh, the sort of global history of cotton as a commodity. But it occupied a really similar role in some ways in the global economy in the 19th century where you just had the beginnings of industrialization happening early in the century in Britain and then in some other places, uh, it, it occupied a very similar position to oil in some ways, oil in our present-day economy. I mean, this was the commodity everybody had to have if they wanted to run an industrial economy because factories really start, the first factories that we have uh, are cotton textile factories. They take raw cotton and they spin it and then they weave it uh, into into cloth, and then it's eventually sold all over the world, and eventually displaces all of these traditional industries. But mm -hmm. cotton was something that the U.S. was really, really good, as it turned out, uh, at producing, uh, and and for two reasons: one, because there was all of this land, uh, it simply had to be taken uh, from its rightful possessors, <laughs> the Native Americans, and the U.S. government was quite willing to to uh, help. Um, Southern whites participate uh, or carry out that process. And then second of all, um, you, you, uh, as it turned out, 
you could produce it much more efficiently with slave labor than you could with free labor. And that goes against a lot of our theories about how economies work. You know, at, at the very beginning of uh, modern economics, you have, uh, as, a, as a profession, you have Adam Smith arguing that slave labor is inherently not efficient because it does not have the positive incentives that you supposedly have with a wage labor system. But uh, in fact, uh, Southern enslavers came up with a uh, a system that that I I call a technology of torture, and which is recounted by survivors of slavery, which pushed enslaved people to learn how to pick cotton as fast as possible, uh, and uh, set their fastest pace as their quota, and then gradually raise that quota over time. Uh, forcing them to learn even more about how to how to pick it quickly, and this this made the um, productivity uh, of southern slaves very very high compared to you know, free peasants who grew cotton and picked cotton in, in India, for instance, uh, and made the U.S. dominant on the world cotton market. Yes, and this technology of torture. I mean, this is. This is when I began reading your book, and I and I must say it was a very painful read because you uh, use a metaphor that I want you to share with the the listeners so that they could understand just how you laid out your book, and uh, specifically to share with us uh, the the twenty five year old slave you described Charles Ball's life and how how you started it off so that we could really get a feel for what was going on uh, with slavery uh, in the United States. Yeah, one of the things that uh, the system of slavery um, excelled at was, was turning people uh, against themselves and against their own bodies and and uh, there were all sorts of ways to do that uh, through the threat of physical violence, through the threat of violence to, to people that you loved and, and so on. But I think that was probably what was in the back of my mind when I, I decided to use this sort of metaphor to structure the book, which was to, to break it up into chapters that were named after body parts, because I could see different ways in which the system of slavery as it expanded and built uh, was at different times and places focusing in particular on particular parts of enslaved people's bodies. So, for instance, uh, the, the the thing that happened to Charles Ball in 1805, who was a slave in, in Maryland and thought he might eventually be able to purchase his freedom, was that he was one day, without any warning, sold to a, a slave trader uh, who then uh, locked his uh, locked his wrists uh, to the wrists of another slave, and those two slaves were uh, locked together with about 30 other men, uh, and and so 33 or 34 enslaved men all chained together in a gigantic chain gang called a coffle were marched down to Georgia. And I called the chapter where I described that feat, because what was happening there was that enslaved people's feet were literally being turned against everything that they wanted to happen in their life, uh, were being uh, in some ways taken away from them. Uh, and then once he gets to Georgia, Charles Ball, who's you know who's been very adept at all kinds of labor, being a blacksmith, a carpenter, a woodcutter, uh, a harvester of, of wheat, etc. Uh, he's a very strong, physically fit guy. Uh, he finds out that he is terrible at picking cotton. And a lot of uh, a lot of individuals, especially if they were sold to the cotton frontier after about 24 or 25, found that it was very difficult to learn this task, which required a lot of uh, dexterity of hands and fingers and constant, constant movement all day long, bending at the waist, reaching up when the cotton plants were high. <clears throat> it's very difficult for people to learn how to pick cotton quick. And he felt as if his hands were being turned against him. And this came up in a lot of the other uh, narratives and, and memoirs as well. Uh, the way uh, in, in, in which the process of being pushed constantly by this technology of torture to pick as quickly as possible, uh, that, that this really was, in a sense, one's body being turned against oneself. Uh, okay. you, and, and even if you learned how to do it well, uh, if you learned how to pick 100 pounds of cotton a day instead of 95, Eventually, they were going to ask you to pick 105 or 110, 
And so your successes were being turned against you as well. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I ended up structuring the book along those lines in, <clears throat> in different ways. And I was inspired in doing that by um, a article or a, a essay by, by Ralph Ellison uh, and, and his general sense of U.S. history, which he said was uh, one way to think about it was uh, it was a drama uh, being played out on by actors, as it were, right, on, on top of the uh, the body of, as he put it uh, in the 1950s, a Negro giant, trussed up like Gulliver. Um, part of the action, the basis of the action, but not completely free to act. And this seemed to really describe the, the process of African American in general in this massive expansion of, of cotton slavery. Yes. Well, you have comments coming out of the chat, and so I'm going to just share with you some of those comments. Uh, one comment uh, from Jolie. Hi, Jolie. Weren't slaves themselves commodities a component of early capitalism? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that I I try to talk about in, in the book. I mean, enslaved people were, throughout the period I'm talking about, uh, 1790 to 1860, uh, depending on the year, uh, between 15 and 20 percent of all the wealth in the United States. And of that wealth in the United, I mean that that barely begins to tell the story because of that wealth in the United States. This was the 15 or 20 percent that lenders were willing to use as collateral. So if you owned uh, enslaved people, uh, you could literally use their bodies to borrow money much more easily than uh, you could use any other kind of property. <clears throat> and one of the reasons is that you had this really active slave uh, trade. Um, all of these market institutions that sort of rendered enslaved people uh, at particular points in their lives as as commodities, uh, particularly when they were preteens, teenagers, and and young adults. It was very very easy to to sell them. So that's that's really crucial to the building of capitalism in the in the slave South, and and in fact to the importing of capital into the United States as a whole. The, the fact that British lenders, uh, Dutch lenders, French lenders, German lenders, and and lenders from the north of the U.S. were always willing. Uh, you could always find people to lend money uh, on on enslaved people as collateral. Yes, indeed. Well, I want to go back to a comment you made about the slave narratives. I see Sam Lemon has a, a comment coming out that slave narratives among the best evidence of the institution of slavery. It's ironic that critics who lived a century after slavery discount those first-person accounts, which are remarkably diverse and objective. Yeah, uh, I I completely agree. Um, I've been, um, I probably shouldn't have been, but I've been, I've been shocked in this process by uh, in the process of discussing the book, by some of the things people will say, I mean, the the Economist review is just one case, uh, but there are a lot of others. And 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 in that case, uh, the reviewer said uh, essentially uh, that that I was I just had the anecdotes and the testimony of a few old ex-slaves, and and I'm just I'm baffled by this because if I wanted to know what was really happening in a company. Uh, or in a factory or a workplace or something like this, I would certainly um, want to know what what the people who were working on the shop floor thought. You know, I would want to know what the cashiers thought. Uh, you know, if you want to know what's going on in the army, um, yeah, you want to hear from the generals, but you want to hear from the foot soldiers as well. And so there's this there's a systematic uh, habit uh, in American culture of dismissing the testimony of African Americans, and I cannot see the reaction to the slave narratives as anything other than that. I mean, we see it in today's culture. We see it in, in controversies and uh, political controversies and other, other controversies that go on around us all the time uh, that, that for some Americans, uh, there is a reflex dismissal of African-American testimony about African-American life. And I'm not saying that everybody does it or that every time somebody can test testimony, that's what's going on. Uh, but it's it's something that we cannot ignore. It's something that happens, and I think that's crucial to uh, our, um, our our longstanding habit of of you know putting up with the dismissal of the the slave narratives. 
Right, and and another comment pretty much uh, ditto what you just said. I mean, the the slaves spoke for themselves; they didn't have to embroider those accounts. And it's the horror of the comprehensive physical and psychological torture of what happened, and many of them. I mean, they they are telling it; they're just getting the story out. And for mm-hmm. for many of us, this is something that. Uh, we have grown to understand that these slave narratives do provide an account of what happened during slavery, which is not yeah. sugar-coated. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I agree. Yes. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come right back, and continue this discussion. Just a quick break. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, the wrong music started playing here for a minute. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. to welcome everyone back to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to author and professor and historian Edward Eugene Baptist discuss his book, The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. And I do have two comments coming out of the chat room, one Perhaps the accomplished society to totally accept what they've had to say that would require staring at the horror upon the nation is built, upon which the nation is built. Yeah, and, I think that's, and then, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough to do. Yeah. Yes, that that is so tough to do. And then there are two questions coming out. What does one do when they recognize and admit that their reality is based upon something horrific? Mm, yeah. Uh, well, I think that's a challenge that uh, a number of societies have have faced, um, you know, sometimes squarely, sometimes not so squarely. I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm reminded here of, uh, again, Ta-Nehisi Coates and his uh, piece on, on um Reparations that came out in the Atlantic last year, and he mostly focused on on um, on things that had happened after emancipation, which was an interesting strategy on his part. But he he used a comparison of um, German reparations to Israel after uh, after World War II. And we know the process of German uh, the German culture. Let's put it that way: um, German public culture coming to terms with the the reality of the Holocaust has been a you know it's been a long one. Um, and it's been a complicated one, uh, but but it's it's one that, uh, to their credit, uh, a lot of Germans have taken on. And I don't mean to suggest that that uh, people haven't tried to do that, um, including a lot of descendants of enslavers here in the United States. But it's a very it's a very difficult process, and it's made more difficult, um, I think, by our, our desire to see the United States as special, uh, as different, as having a not just a unique mission in in human history. Uh, but a uniquely um, clean historical record uh, of being a savior nation. It's hard to it's hard to really um, 
to maintain that belief if you take a, a good hard look at, at um, the history of, of, in particular, of Native peoples in the U.S. Uh, and the history of enslavement and the aftermath of slavery in the U.S. Yes, indeed it is. Now, you started off by talking to us about the feet. Uh, what about the head? I mean, I know that you went through the various body parts, mm-hmm. but tell us about the head. Yeah, in that chapter, which is the second full chapter in the book, I, I talk uh, about, um, I, I guess a way to put it is is the accomplishment of American empire in the Mississippi Valley. Because, of course, before the U.S. acquires Louisiana from uh, from the French, uh, it's it's not clear um, when the U.S. will be able to dom- <clears throat> dominate the uh, the Mississippi Valley, or even if they will be able to. But a couple of things happened that that enabled the U.S. to to do that, and one of the most important is the success of the Haitian Revolution, which uh, destroyed, uh, from the perspective of the French, uh, the the most valuable French colony sugar colony in the in the Caribbean. Uh, but from the perspective of the enslaved people who overthrew colonial domination and established a free nation. And once they lost the colony of Saint-Domingue, uh, the French tried to regain it under Napoleon Bonaparte, and they uh, burned up a couple of armies, essentially, trying to retake it. And, and once they were unable to do so, Napoleon decided he was going to sell essentially the Mississippi Valley to the United States. So this is kind of ironic process by which slave revolution and freedom in the Caribbean uh, ultimately leads to greater enslavement uh, in the United States on the mainland. And enslaved people resist this. And in 1811, they launch what's probably the biggest slave rebellion in the United States before the Civil War. In in the uh, in Louisiana along the Mississippi River, and they get within. Uh, there's a group of about 400 rebels, maybe, that gets within about uh, 25 miles of New Orleans before they're defeated, and they're completely defeated and completely destroyed. And their heads are uh, of, of the heads of all the rebels who are <clears throat> captured or killed in battle are mounted on stakes uh, that are planted along the Mississippi River uh, for about 30 miles up and down the river. And and this marks, I think, really the end of the real possibility that enslaved people by themselves, by uh, active rebellion in the same way that you saw in Saint-Domingue, um, which became Haiti, uh, that they're going to be able to overthrow slavery. Because uh, American enslavers are just they're, – they're much more powerful than the French enslavers uh, in the Caribbean. There are many more of them. They have a, a state that's completely behind them. Uh, they're better armed. They're more alert. And so that means that enslaved people uh, are going to have to find different ways to resist. And, and they're going to have to wait. They're going to have to be able to recognize uh, what's happening around them. Uh, and, and it's a very difficult process for them. Yes, indeed it is. Now, I want to let everyone know that the phone line is open so that any of you would like to call in and ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and then press 1 to speak to the host. In the meantime, I want you to continue to talk to us about the various chapters. And you've given us the feet. You've told us about the feet and the head. Take us through the next body part. Uh, well, we got to, we have um, right hand and, and left hand, uh, and that's where I really talk about the um, the creation of the the cotton empire, and the, in particular the creation of this technology of torture, which really does pit people's right hands and left hands against each other. Uh, against you know against themselves and their own best interests in certain ways, and and that's the the sort of motor uh, of slavery's expansion on one level. It's the kind of um, microeconomic heart of the expansion of slavery in the U.S. But after that, I talk. Uh, I I have two chapters called um, uh, breath and and tongues. Now what I what I talk. What I talk about in there is the creation or the recreation of African-American culture in the process of forced migration. Because as people are brought, and many of them are very young, 
Uh, they're very isolated as individuals because they've been sold into the domestic slave trade with nobody else they know around them anymore. They're they're brought from distant parts of the United States, uh, from Virginia and Maryland, uh, from South Carolina, from Georgia, from North Carolina. Some are even kidnapped from the North, like Solomon Northup. And they're they're culturally different from each other in many cases. You know, if you take somebody from the low country of South Carolina and somebody from uh, the Virginia Piedmont, they might not even be able to understand each other at first. The dialects are going to be very different. But what enslaved people do in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana is is they literally build uh, African-American culture as we understand it today. Uh, They create many of the uh, religious practices, and they're building these things out of the materials they have, you know, that have been built by previous generations. But now they're mixing it together and creating something that works for them in the crisis that they find themselves in. New dialect, uh, in fact, that becomes the basis of of, uh, what linguists uh, have at times called standard African-American English. Um, So a new dialect and accent, uh, new kinds of music, new kinds of religious practices. And what I think is the most important is a new way uh, of thinking about history, uh, a new way of understanding the process that they're going through, uh, the process of the connection between capitalism's expansion uh, and the the horrible things that happen in the cotton field and at, at the end of the day when weighing up comes. And this, you know... Uh, does doesn't mean that every single person thinks the same thing, that every single person believes the same thing, that every single person feels the same kind of solidarity uh, with with other enslaved African Americans, but a large large number of them do, and we ultimately see the the uh, the fruits of that uh, in in the survival of African American culture, the survival of African American individuals, the rebuilding of families among people who you know, might have been too traumatized uh, to re- to create new families on cottons, on the cotton frontier. But they do. Uh, they do those things. And in the 1860s, when, uh, when the opportunity comes, they carry out what I would see as the most important, the biggest slave rebellion in human history, uh, perhaps. And that's the participation of enslaved people uh, in resistance to the, uh, the Confederacy. And in, and in Union victory, and this ensures that slavery ends. So the survival, uh, the rebuilding, uh, the creating of a common tongue, moving in a common breath or spirit, uh, this is this is what makes uh, all of those things possible, what makes freedom possible. It, in, indeed it does. Now, as you have gone through through this book, what effect did it have on you? Because it's it's really interesting to to read how you laid out this book, and I know as 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 a reader of this book, I sometimes had to just put it down. I can't read anymore because I'm reading about the violence, I'm reading about the separation, the forced migration, the sexual assaults. But as as a person who's digging into all types of resources. What impact did it have on on you personally? Well, it's it certainly um, it certainly was a powerful impact. Uh, as as one of the listeners pointed out, you know, the um, the testimony uh, of survivors is is often a lot more um, uh, clear and. Um, uh, and forceful than than we'd like to admit. And and once uh, once that once that started to hit home, uh, there were certainly a lot of times where I had to just stop research for the day uh, and go go do something else uh, to get my um, to get my head uh, into a different space for a little while because some of it was so um, overwhelming. Um, some of the things that that made it into the book, you know, um, the first time I wrote them out. Uh, I mean, it might appear in the book as a a two or three page at most anecdote, but when I first wrote it out, it was ten pages, uh, and I had to pare it down. You know, I had to figure out the best way to communicate it, um, communicate the facts, the empirical 
information I knew, but also um, tell tell the story in an in effective way uh, without overdoing it, you know, as it were. Uh, and and in the end, I think that allows it to have a bigger impact. And that process took time. Uh, it took a lot of processing of it, processing of my emotions, learning more about the context, et cetera. But but it, it was um, uh, it, it was at times a a very painful uh, experience um, for me uh, as a parent, um, you know, as a human being. Uh, yeah, uh, it was mm-hmm. it was tough. Yes, and we have uh, a couple of questions coming out of the chat room. Uh, please say more about how the injustices of slavery are connected to racially-based violence today. And then the second part is, do criticisms of both reflect denial, rationalization, and blaming the victim, again, so prevalent today, or are they prevalent today? Yeah. Well, I think we can see a couple of... um, what seem to me to be pretty clear connections. I mean, uh, from the past to, to today's present, and one of them has to do with wealth in this country. Uh, there was just a report. Uh, I think that the um, Pew Charitable Trust, I think, put out, uh, but it's an update on on what we knew about household wealth in this country. And it turns out that in 2014, the median household wealth. Um, for whites is 14 times that of African Americans. And some of this is due to uh, generations of racially discriminatory policies and um, and other things along those lines since 1865. But some of it is due to the fact that massive amounts of wealth were accumulated before 1865 in slavery uh, and have never been transferred back uh, to the people or the descendants of the people who who accumulated them, and and this this seems to me to be you know really really significant to the disparities that we continue to see today, and and of course uh, it's as I said it's reinforced it's been reinforced in almost every generation with very few exceptions by continued um, imposition of racially discriminatory policies, but that that early start of inequity is really important. I mean, if you think about what a financial advisor will tell you when you're 25 or 30, start saving for retirement now because every dollar that you save now is going to be, its impact is going to be magnified by the time you reach retirement age, uh, by the power of of, uh, compound interest and, and investment over time. And that's what those dollars from slavery are like in today's economy. You know, there's those early years of saving, those early years of wealth accumulation. And so they have an an impact uh, on the wealth of American society, but also the unequal wealth of American society that goes well beyond uh, what, what we might see as their sort of nominal totals. And then the other thing, of course, is that, you know, um, a lot of our patterns of policing uh, – seem to go back to to slavery in the United States. Uh, there's always been a profound fear uh, of African-American rebellion, which has been used to justify, um, which some whites have used to justify inordinate violence um, by those who are seen as wielding authority against African-Americans. African-American resistance, African-American autonomy, uh, has been seen by many whites uh, as a danger, as a problem, uh, and this this seems to for I some think whites. I just lost Professor Baptist. I can still hear I'm you. I'm not sure what has happened. I think we've just lost him. Uh, let me go back and and see what's going on because I don't have any sound. Uh, please, someone, let me know if you are hearing. Me because I'm not hearing any sound right now. Okay, I I can actually hear you. Okay, right. okay, yeah? you're fine. That's good. You got okay. It. All right, good. Yes, I I lost you for a minute. Okay. Okay, if everything is going okay, yes. Good. Okay, well, th- uh, this is certainly um, it, it. It's just a a 
a, a topic I think it just requires so much dialogue. And you have you you started it. And it's it's dialogue that needs to uh be communicated everywhere, in the schools, in the churches, in the community centers and what have you. Because if we're not talking about slavery, if we're not talking about the impact it has had on, on our society today and also the economy something very, very big. So tell us where you're going right now with with your projects and, and what else is on the horizon for you. Yeah, great. Um great question. <laughs> that's always a that's always a um it's a fun question, you know, and um also uh kind of a frightening one as well because because this project took a long time to to complete and I, I don't know how long the next ones will take but I want to do two things um, one is I <clears throat> excuse me I want to write uh, the next volume I guess in the story uh, I want to look at, at what happened after emancipation and maybe um, extending the story as far as uh, the 1930s so another another lifetime uh span uh and also taking the at at the same time taking the story of uh uh survivors of the slavery uh and the descendants of of survivors um all the way up to to the uh you know the time of the great migration the time of the uh beginning of the shift of african americans from the republican party to the democratic party the depression and the new deal uh and and some of the things that that really lead the 20th the second half of the 20th century to be different from the first half of the 20th century so i'm i'm thinking about uh writing about that period and one of the the sources i really want to dig into in greater depth which i use a little bit the last part of this book is the um pension narratives uh union veterans pension narratives which are in the national archives and which are this incredible resource that historians have just begun to use, I think, in any depth. There's one book about them by Donald Schaefer, and I forget the name of his co-author, which I'm sorry about, um, and also another book uh, by Tony Kay, which uses them a lot. But they're in those um, in those documents, we find really rich records of about, a, I would say, probably about 100,000 African-American Union Army veterans. It'll really give you a great picture of what life was like in the late 19th, early 20th century. So that's one thing I want to work on. The other thing I'm working on, which is already underway, and I'm I'm doing this with a number of collaborators, including Josh Rothman at University of Alabama, Molly Mitchell at University of New Orleans, and, and some wonderful um, staff folks here at the Cornell Library and at the Cornell Institute for Social and Economic Research. And that is a database of runaway slave ads, which were placed by enslavers uh, when an enslaved person tried to make a break for it, basically. Uh, when they tried to get away, uh, whether they were you know, running back to wherever they'd been sold from, uh, just trying to get away for uh, for a little while, or trying to actually make it um, to freedom. And these would appear in newspapers. They often have really rich description of individual people, um, not just their names and their age and how tall they are, but what they were wearing, uh, where they might be headed to, uh, what uh, what kind of scars and marks they might have, what kind of language they speak, etc. So we're trying to create a database that will contain all of those ads. And we think there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of them out there. And one of the things we want to do with this database is to, to make some of the processing of data be crowdsourced. So uh, we would uh, open it up to the public to, to look at the ads, help us to transcribe the ads, help us to get the data out of those ads and into the database so it can so it can be analyzed by anybody who wants to use it. We're just starting to reach the point where we're testing that uh that uh, user interface for the database, um, where we're testing that out on a couple of um, undergraduate classes this next semester. So it's moving along, and I, I hope we can, uh, you know, maybe in a year or two, uh, maybe pass a word on to some of your listeners that it's available to the public for them to to use and to tinker with and to investigate uh, these documents uh, with the help of that database. Oh, that would be wonderful. I've spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress looking at some of those runaway slave ads, and 
uh, you're right, they are quite descriptive and mm-hmm. very valuable. Uh, also, the pension files, I'm, I'm working on the uh, widow's pension files, trying to get them uh, digitized uh, oh, wow. to put up yeah, on fold three. And so it's just amazing the stories that you can see in the testimonies that are presented in the, the widow's pension files as well as the uh, the veterans files, the USCT pension files. So you are so right. These are excellent, excellent resources uh, for the uh, listeners to to delve into. And so, I am just excited to hear you even mention it. As you as you know, and I, I share with you, many of the individuals who are on this call tonight are genealogists and they are some many of them are descendants of slaves and descendants of slave owners and they have used some of the uh, actual resources that you have mentioned so uh, from a historical perspective it's great that you know that we know that you're using these records and telling the story and putting everything in the context and then the genealogists are then looking at their family members and using those exact same uh, resources. So we are getting close to the end of the show, and do you have any parting words before we uh, disconnect from your excellent discussion of your book tonight? Well, um, I think I think what I have to say is, is this, which is that I've been really, um, on the one hand, uh, things like the economist review and and there've been some other uh outpourings let's put it uh put it that way from from that uh from that what i see as a poisoned well of of the long history of defending slavery and defending slavery's legacy I, I, that's been disheartening but what's more powerful and and i think it's more powerful now and i think it'll be far more powerful in the long run uh, is is the support uh, and the, the outpouring of um, you know uh, of positivity of uh, willingness of people to take on the difficult subjects of history, uh, both uh, white and black um, descendants of slave owners, descendants of ensl- of, of enslaved people. Well, uh, I there, certainly want to thank you so response. much for coming on the show tonight. I have lost sound again with you, but I know you're probably still talking. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I, we, we have claps coming out of the chat room and uh, a question that asking me if I will invite you back on the show. And so you, you do have uh, individuals who are very happy that you have written this book, The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. And uh, let's keep talking. I, I, I want to hear from you. I want to read what else you're doing. And please, please come back. I'd love to do that. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you very much. Well, I want everyone to uh, remember that this show will continue on next week and the following weeks, and you can always catch me every Thursday night. Uh, Please remember to continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton Raji. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Block Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Professor Baptist. All right. Good night. Thank you.